I mean, if you had a million followers on Twitter, you're not going to give that audience up that easily. You would probably be to have access to those million people. Some threshold is worth paying him to have access to your army. Welcome, everybody, to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Teddy Schleifer. It is Wednesday, November 9th. And today, Bill Cohen and I are here to talk about whether Elon Musk can transform Twitter from an advertising business into a subscription company and to do so quickly before he's got to pay up. And later on, Julia Alexander is here to talk about Hocus Pocus 2. It had one of the biggest opening viewing audiences in Disney Plus history, which has some people asking, why exactly was it not released in theaters? Julia tells us why it is the quintessential streaming movie. We'll hear all about that more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back, everybody, to the powers that be. Obviously, yesterday was election day. We will have more election content than you ever wish for beginning tomorrow, Thursday. But in the meantime, as the dust is settling on last night, let's return to the other chaos-fueled political monster that is the situation at Twitter.com with Bill Cohen. Hey, Bill. Hey, Teddy. Great to be here as always. I want to go into kind of what the situation is operationally at Twitter, which you've been writing about this week. We've talked a lot on the show about financial situation and you know whether or not Elon taking on risk and the banks are taking on risks and sort of the Wall Street view of this. I want to just talk about it more as, as a company. Obviously, Twitter has half as many employees as it had a week ago, though there are reports that they are now rehiring some people that they have fired, which is uh, not a good sign. But let's say it's about half. But interestingly, Twitter is basically trying to redo its entire business model right now, right? For, for a decade, Twitter has been this very, very small advertising business. And now Elon, is, as part of his takeover, is trying to basically transform the company into a subscription business, charging somewhat famously now $8 a month. We'll see how many people that applies to in the end, how many people pay $8 a month. But just at a high level, like operationally, Bill, what is the objective here of kind of moving from an ad-based business 
to a subscription-based business? And, and, and operationally, how does one do that? I could, I, I could answer those questions with any authority. I might be in contention to be the CEO of uh, Twitter for Elon, and obviously I'm not in any position to have that job. So therefore, this is going to be one of my favorite things, which is uh, informed speculation. You know, I had some questions about his operational strategy here between the firing half the workforce, naming and shaming advertisers to the point that, you know, a long list now is pausing uh, their advertising spend on Twitter, which obviously is going to hurt the revenues dramatically, at least in the near term. The whole blue check controversy that you were just alluding to, impersonating Elon Musk controversy, which got Kathy Griffin, the comedian, banned for life, which is, you know, absurd. So is his plan really to sort of blow up the town square that he's trying to create before he has to save it, before he can save it? That seems to be where he's at. So I reached out to um, Sir Martin Sorrell, who is, uh, of course, a genius of advertising lately of digital advertising. And so he's a guy who knows a thing about this topic. And he had a few interesting points. He said, um, Elon has got to focus on content moderation and on morale. If he's going to have any hope of making this a success, uh, content moderation, obviously, because advertisers don't want to be next to divisive, nasty, mean, ugly, racist, misogynist content. So uh, he's got to fix that. He's got to make this, you know, a relatively safe place um, for people to advertise. And by the way, I would say, you know, he's definitely not getting out of the advertising business, despite him saying that he didn't like advertising. I think he's trying to reduce the revenue that Twitter relies on from advertising. Martin Sorrell's point is that right now, that they, that incredibly, and I didn't realize this, the digital advertising globally, the size of that market is something like $500 billion. I saw an estimate for this year that it would be like closer to $600 billion. So with Twitter's revenues at $5 billion, so it gets, you know, it's like 1%, it's getting 1% share of the digital uh, advertising market. You know, that's pretty uh, immaterial. Right, but it's a, it's a big percentage of Twitter's revenue as a company, though, right? Right, it's like the majority of, vast majority, 90 plus percent of Twitter's revenue. So Sorrell's point is that if Elon can just capture more, a greater percentage of that digital advertising dollar, that 500 billion and go, you know, and, and the number he was using was 25 billion. So go from 1% to 5%, which still isn't that much. Obviously, this thing could be hugely successful. So content moderation and then rebuilding morale. Bill, on the operational uh, transformation that they're making there, they're not abandoning advertising. I mean, I think the idea is that advertisers might flee whether Elon wants them to or not. But I guess what is the Elon bull case here? Well, of course, I've put it out there, Teddy, that anybody who has a copy of uh, Elon's projections and business plan, whatever he used with the banks and his merry band of equity investors, you know, please send it along. I've not received that yet. So the truth is, we don't know uh, what the bull case is. We can only sort of infer it from this, you know, the little machinations that have been going on for the last two weeks. And so again, what Sorrell said, Elon 
wants to increase subscription rep right now it's probably you know very small right i mean there are people who have uh whatever that twitter blue is not blue checks but whatever that special service is i mean there must be some people doing that so that's very small but i would say you know let's just say for the sake of argument that 95 percent of twitter's revenues last year came from advertising he wants to make it 50 percent of revenues coming from advertising but the amount of advertising that he's getting, he wants to go from 1% of the overall digital ad spend to 2, 3, 4, 5%. So, you know, revenues increase overall, advertising dollars of revenue increases, but there's also now a large subscription stream of uh, revenue. His early efforts to do that through the blue check business of $8, first saying it was going to be $20 and having everyone laugh at, you know, just saying that's pathetic, which of course it was, to $8 now, you know, it's like still people are saying, yeah, okay, it's not a lot of money, but what am I getting for it? You know, what's the value in, you know, $100 a year? I researched this. I thought, how many people on Twitter have, you know, a million followers? Say there's 450 million people who monthly average users of Twitter how many do you think have a million followers? Just take a wild ass guess. How many users on Twitter have a yep. million followers? Uh, I'm going to guess 2,000. 2,000 out of 450 million. Yeah. Is that, is, that a, is that a good guess? It's a good guess. It's actually 4,400. Okay. Right ballpark. I mean, if you had a million followers on Twitter, that's a small army. If you had that kind of an army, if you, had, if you were just like one of those 4,400 people, you know, just a regular Sheldrake who somehow got a million people to follow him, you're not going to give that audience up that easily, I wouldn't think. So you would probably pay Elon Musk, as painful as it might be, to have access to those million people. So it's some threshold. I don't know whether it's a million followers or 500,000. It's worth paying him to have access to your army. If I were him, that would be something else I'd be contemplating. But how many people, you know, is that? You know, here's my concern because you know, operationally is, of course, tied to finances as well. You know, it's inevitable. But, if, you know, if you cut half the workforce, as he's now done, and are trying this, you know, crazy thing with the blue check and haven't introduced other sources of revenue and advertisers are fleeing, and you've got $500 million of, of interest payments due in April, where are you going to get that $500 million? If they don't make those payments and he doesn't have the cash flow from the business to do it, and I don't know where that's going to come from, given that he's cut half the workforce, advertisers are fleeing, and the subscription thing isn't kicking in. So he's got till April to figure this out. Well, this will certainly be a, a Harvard Business School case study of business transformation. Bill, thanks for coming by. Thank you, Teddy. When we come back, Ben Landy and Julia Alexander are here on Hocus Pocus 2 and why you can't see it in theaters. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. 
But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy, chatting today with my brilliant colleague, Julia Alexander. Hey, Julia. Hey, Ben. How are you? I'm good. So just to level set, we are recording this on a Tuesday afternoon, uh, full disclosure, which means midterm voting is underway. We have no idea what the results are. And it's also likely we won't know the outcome for numerous races by the time you're listening to this. So instead, we're going to talk about Hocus Pocus. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Julia, I admit, I never saw the original film, and I didn't watch the sequel either, but this movie is a source of some fascination in Hollywood these days. I guess a lot of people did watch this movie, right? A lot of people watched Hocus Pocus 2. If we look at just some of the very basic numbers that have come out in the last week or two weeks or so, you know, it set the record for a streaming movie, according to Nielsen. There was 2.7 billion minutes watched in the first kind of opening weekend. And that beat out Disney Plus's Encanto, which was the next movie at 2.2 billion minutes that really registered on Nielsen's streaming charts. If we look at just that alone, it really speaks to the demand for this type of movie in the domestic marketplace um, within the United States and Canada, especially as people who are going for nostalgic reasons or kids who are coming into it seek out a Halloween movie to watch. But it also set up this debate within Hollywood of if it was so popular, if so many people were going to come out and watch it, you know, at home, could it have done well in theaters? Could it have been a movie that netted Disney 20 to $30 million and kind of found money profit? Is that something that could have happened? Or is it the better streaming movie? But this is really the existential question in Hollywood these days, the, the identity crisis that is behind so much the anxiety. How do you decide which movie goes on streaming? How do you decide which one goes into theaters? What was the rationale for keeping this out of movie theaters when it seemed like there was such an incredible demand for it? My belief, based on the data that we have, and this is where I put in my short preamble about the data that we're going off of is inherently flawed because the data that we are going off of for streaming over the last two years is based on human behavior and consumption patterns that came from an unprecedented moment, which is the pandemic. So if we take that and kind of put it into a bucket and acknowledge that that's there, it's the big asterisk hanging over the whole conversation. Looking at the data that we do have, 
95% of movies should go to theaters. What we see on streaming is that movies that have gone to theaters in 30 to 45 days and then come to HBO Max or Disney Plus or Peacock or whatever it might be, actually see a bit of a, an increased level of demand and increased level of engagement because they've had this level of theatricality attached to it. Within this world, though, there's this 5% of like, what do we do with this type of movie? So if we look at a company like Universal, they'll do day and day experiments with something like Halloween Ends, which they put in theaters and on Peacock at the same day in October. What we also get is kind of Disney's position, which is different than HBO Max's position under David Zaslav, the current CEO, which is different from former CEO Jason Klar. Under kind of Bob Chapek, there's a set number of movies that seemingly are going to go to Disney Plus because the idea is that they're just not necessarily going to work theatrically and the benefit that they'll have on a streaming platform outweighs the potential cons of going to a theater. So I'll give you a great example. If we look at kind of what Disney's been doing with its live action entrance in the space, that's a combination of both like the Lion King stuff they've been doing like that live action, as well as like Pinocchio and Peter and Wendy, which is like a Peter Pan movie. They're taking some of these films and they're putting them in theaters like we see with The Lion King. And then they're taking some of these films and putting them on Disney+. And the idea with a company like Disney is that, one, if a movie's going to do well, it has to do well globally. Disney's a global theatrical distributor. If they're not just going to take a movie and put it in domestic theaters for 45 days, put something else on Disney+, Plus, they really don't want to do that. They want to have a global release or they want to have a global streaming release. So if we look at something like Hocus Pocus 2... This idea that it did really well domestically is really important because we don't know if it would have traveled well internationally. And from what I hear from people both within Disney and then looking at the data itself, it probably wouldn't have traveled well internationally. So all of a sudden you have this movie that might have made 20, 30 million dollars domestically, maybe, which is something to scoff at. But when you're Disney, what is the advantage to having this movie go to a streaming service like Disney Plus instead? One, it kind of increases engagement right ahead of Disney launching its ad tier, which makes the idea of Disney Plus more valuable to consumers who are subscribed, but it also makes it more valuable to advertisers who are seeing this level of engagement. Two, it's a way to kind of boost subscriber numbers, people who may have been into the original movie but weren't signed up for Disney Plus. There might be a small number of those and people will come in and watch it. And three, it's a way to kind of keep people looking at something like Disney Plus as a streaming service that's not just Marvel and Star Wars. It's this idea of like, well, Disney's taking really exciting movies that people are interested in and putting them on Disney Plus for everyone to see at the same time globally. Remember, Disney under Bob Chapek is a company that thinks that you can have movie franchises born out of streaming, that you don't necessarily have to go to theaters, which is different from a lot of his other executive counterparts who believe that they still have to go to streaming. And so all of these things come together and in my opinion, make for the perfect streaming movie. It's one of those rare 5% type films that would actually do better for the company and for the film on a streaming platform and for the audience than putting it in a theater where people might not see the value perception of that movie in a theater as strong as something like a horror movie or a really big superhero movie, which they think they have to go out to theaters to see immediately. Right. As you noted, the counterexample here would be that had they put it in theaters, at least for some kind of brief window, potentially they could have gotten two bites at the apple, having some sort of audience before Halloween, and then they throw it on streaming for Halloween, and, and then audience come back and watch it a second time. But the view inside Disney, as, as I hear you explaining it, is that in fact, it's more valuable to grow that streaming audience than the extra money that they might have taken in by putting it in theater for some sort of limited run, especially when it was not going to deliver a lot of box office internationally as well. From the executives you talk to, do most people in Hollywood sort of buy that logic right now? Or is there some doubt about the Disney strategy going forward? The vast majority of people I talk to really believe that most films should go to theaters, especially because what COVID did was accelerated this 
moment for the distributors uh, and the theatrical exhibitors to have this moment of saying like, we're going to do only do 45 days and then we're going to go to streaming. The vast majority of films make 98% of their revenue within 30 to 40 days. So being in theaters for 70 days doesn't make a lot of sense. Now you're spending more. You're not really recuperating much of that revenue based on what you're spending to keep it in theaters beyond that 45 day mark. At 45 days, being able to take a film and put it on the streaming service or go directly to PVOD, which is like your kind of iTunes or Amazon Prime uh, in terms of rental, um, in order to do that is going to generate more revenue in general for the company. So if you ask a lot of these executives, what is the best bang for your buck? It's to put a movie in theaters for 45 days. Now, if we look at Hocus Pocus, the key word here is like maybe they would have made money off it. My perception of that film is that it did as well as it did on Disney Plus because it was on Disney Plus. It is not a type of film that is going to generate huge amounts of people going out to watch this movie. Now, the counter argument that you'll hear from a lot of people is there was hardly any competition in the family market space at the time. They could have put it out a little bit earlier and had it, to your point, had it on Disney Plus right for Halloween so people can rewatch it over Halloween weekend, um, that there was an opportunity to really lean into the kids space, which we've seen some success in if we look at Sonic and if we look at kind of Minions. You know, there's an opportunity for August Book is to maybe do really successfully in the United States domestically. But my argument, just looking at that kind of data, is that this is not the type of film that people are going to rush out to theaters to watch, especially in a period of increased inflation, especially in a period of where job security is becoming less and less um, certain, and especially when people are trying to really figure out where they can budget their money. If you have a family who's saying we would we would rather go watch a Black Adam or whatever it may be, and we can watch this movie at home, and this is the type of movie that we really want to watch over and over again, the value perception of that movie is that it's a perfect streaming movie. It's not something that they necessarily want to go up to theaters to see. When we talk about a lot of these movies that go from theaters to streaming and see a huge bump in demand and viewership, a lot of it's like The Batman and Black Phone. And there's these types of movies that people would have naturally gone to see in theaters anyways and are rewatching. Or people who are kind of like, oh, I missed out on the first two weeks of when it was out and it's going to be on Peacock or it's going to be on HBO Max in two weeks. So I'll just kind of wait. But that demand is inherently there because it's tied to this kind of bigger thing. If we look at Hocus Pocus 2, it is tied inherently to nostalgia. So you have a lot of families, a lot of 20-somethings and 30-somethings who want to watch this movie. And what they'll do is what, you know, anecdotally, what a lot of my friend groups did, all all of them, they had different Hocus Pocus uh, marathon nights where they would watch the two movies together, but they would not have gone out to watch that movie and paid money for it. Like, that's just, and I asked them that. It was just a very, you know, brief survey of like 30 people. But I was like, would you have paid to go see this movie? And every answer was no. It was like, I don't want to see it, but I like the idea of being able to be at home, have a little cocktail, watch this with my friends. And that's the thing it's going to be. Same with families. You know, it's great because the kids can watch it over and over again. And they might have gone out, but I bet they wouldn't have. So not only is Disney now benefiting from the added engagement on Disney Plus and the ad- and the advertisers coming in and kind of seeing that and all these positives, they're also not dealing with the negative press cycle of like, well, this movie didn't do anything at the theater. Now Disney can say, actually, we have this beneficial press cycle of like this movie is a record-breaking movie for Nielsen. So all these things help really get across the point that this was a big movie for Disney, even if it necessarily wasn't. And that would have been the case if we had gone theatrical. So I think when you look at all of these different points, it becomes very clear that Hocus Pocus 2 is like the quintessential should have gone directly to streaming movie. Julia, thanks so much for stopping by and explaining this. And uh, maybe I'll even go queue up that movie to watch it when I get home. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. 
If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13. 